welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. Welcome to the Madden America podcast. My name is Samantha Lilly, a science writer and global mental health researcher here at MIA. I'm so excited to share with you our most recent spotlight interview with Dr. Ursula Reed. In this episode, we'll be discussing anything and everything concerning rights-based approaches to mental health care. That is, how can rights-based mental health care be made more efficacious? Can certain approaches be replicated across cultures? And in what ways do our perspectives in the global north misunderstand and misrepresent practices in the global south, especially in Africa and particularly in Ghana? Thank you so much for listening and please enjoy. Ursula Reed is a research fellow and associate at King's College London. She holds a PhD in anthropology from University College London based on an ethnography of family experiences of mental illness and help seeking in Ghana. Currently, her work centers itself around both global mental health inquiry and participatory research methods and ethnography. With a geographical focus in Ghana, she explores the experiences of mental illness and social exclusion in the region. She has helped articulate the efficacy of the mental health care interventions in the region, as well as identify areas for improvement to better enact rights-based approaches to mental health care. She does this with the aid of those she works with and with a critical eye turned toward global mental health, what global mental health is and what it can be. Some of her recently published work includes her paper titled Exploring the Potential of a Rights-Based Approach to Work and Social Inclusion for People with Lived Experience of Mental Illness in Ghana which exemplifies how those of us in the global north and high-income countries overlook what rights-based approaches to mental health care may actually look like. She also is concerned deeply with the structural and social determinants of health and mental health and their interconnection with community resources, places of worship, faith, and overall health promotion. Hi, Ursula. How's it going? Hello, Sam. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're so happy to have you here. Um, and I guess just to jump right in, it would be really lovely if you could tell all of us here at MIA and our listeners of this podcast, just to tell us a bit about yourself. Thank you. Uh, yes, I'm a researcher at King's College London, and I've just started working at the University of Warwick on a new study looking at the uh, developing a new model of uh, community-based mental health care, which will be uh, incorporating traditional and faith-based healers um, in uh, low-income communities. But um, I guess what was kind of missing from my introduction was really to talk about how much um, I work with um, my colleagues in Ghana. And uh, I would like to name some of them um, because we've worked very closely together over many years. I worked, first of all, with Solomon Yame, who's a researcher at Kintampo Health Research Center. Um, I'm also work with Lionel Sechi, who's a PhD student at the University of Ghana, um, Dr. Lily Pobi, and Dr. Annabella Osei-Tutu are the two academics that I work with um, at the University of Ghana as well. Um, and so all the work that I've done has been with them. Um, and I must also mention Dr. Victor Doku, who was a psychiatrist from Ghana, who I met in London at a conference and was the whole reason I ended up in Kintampo, because he was working in this Kintampo, which is a town in the middle of Ghana. Um, uh, and he was working, doing an epidemiological study of psychosis uh, through the Health Research Centre, which is based there. And so that opened up a whole... Um, new field site for me which I would never have I would never have gone there were it not for 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 his his work there and so I feel like you know these are the people that that I've worked with and that have enabled my work and I'm very grateful to all the people in Ghana who have who've worked with me and and have supported my work over the years. And so I guess with with all of the conversation about Ghana and all of the incredible people that you've just mentioned um, I guess, could you just tell us a little bit more about what led to your geographical interest in Ghana, specifically coming from the UK? Yeah, it's a really good question. And I often think, what, you know, what was my, my right as a, as a white um, British curious researcher to go to Ghana? I initially trained as an occupational therapist. That's, that's sort of how I ended up working in, in the mental health field. Um, and I was working in London, in um, parts of London with a high sort of over-representation of people of African and Caribbean heritage in the mental health system uh, in London and in, and in the UK generally. And it's it's been a, a big question really as to why that might be and various uh, uh, hypotheses put forward to, towards that. Obviously, racism plays a big role uh, and, and structural discrimination and, and 
uh, yeah, inequalities generally. And so I, that, that kind of opened my interest in how did mental health services operate in a country where that wasn't, you know, there weren't many mental health services. Mm-hmm. I mean, in, in the UK and in, in, in America, we're very used to thinking of psychiatry as this big kind of um, monolithic kind of organization that has a lot of state-sponsored power to kind of incarcerate people against their will and medicate people. And of course, people have there was, you know, a lot of protest against that, a lot of, uh, a lot of resistance from, you know, organizations like Mad in America and other, um, the uh, World Network of Youth and Survivors of Psychiatry. So, but that, um, you know, I was kind of interested to think about what happened in those places where psychiatry wasn't so dominant, where perhaps people made more use of traditional and faith-based healing and where there might be different ways of thinking about mental health and what mental illness is and, and how you might help people with with those uh, difficulties, and so yeah, kind of. I was working alongside a lot of nurses from Ghana. Um, as I said, I met Victor Doku, a Ghanaian psychiatrist, um, and it was those kind of networks really that led me to to think about Ghana as a place where I could do that research. Mm-hmm. Um, I think another big kind of question that was being discussed at the time that I was starting my research, which was kind of uh, in the early uh, 2000s, was the the WHO studies of schizophrenia, which have kind of many people have um, interpreted as showing a better outcome for people with schizophrenia in the developing world, as, as it was then called. Um, and that interpretation of the results was, uh, had really uh, been a topic of quite some discussion around what why would that be why would if there were fewer mental health services why were outcomes better and mm. um and and there were some debates whether as to whether outcomes really were better whether that was just a, a misinterpretation of the results um and so I was very interested to kind of explore those questions really to see you know whether that, that was indeed the case and to use the method of anthropology to, by uh, and kind of occupational therapy in a way looking at this very minute level, how does mental illness affect people's everyday lives, their relationships? You know, how do they get help uh, and, and and what sources of support do they have in their communities? How do they make meaning out of what has happened to them? Mm. Um, uh, those were the kind of questions that I was really interested in. And yeah, what, what, what was the efficacy of these other kinds of healings? I, you know, I wasn't going to do a randomized controlled trial to find out, but I wanted to kind of try and get an idea about what did people find helpful from their own point of view of using uh, traditional and faith-based healers? Yeah. Absolutely. No, it, it really sounds like I always get a little excited or like my, my eyebrows raise just a little bit whenever I hear really incredible academics use the word curiosity as a, as a description, because I think that that at the end of the day, a kind of compassionate curiosity is, is really the, the driver of us all. And I, I think with this idea of compassionate curiosity in mind, especially like in the early 2000s when you're really starting to get engaged, at, at that time, what was your favorite research hat to wear? You began as an occupational therapist and then you started, it seems to like um, oscillate through different roles. And I'm, I'm really curious in this compassionate curiosity sense to, to know what your favorite hat is and um, what your favorite role is then and now and if it's changed and, and circled back around. Yeah. Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I started off, as I said, sort of, I mean, I'd worked in health and social care before and and then I trained as an occupational therapist and I was working in hospitals and community services in, in London and it really had a massive um, impact on me really to think about my own mental health and my own, um, yeah, how I made meaning. And, you know, I came I come from a religious background as well. My Christian family and faith was very important in the way I was brought up. So all those kind of big questions. Um, the the method of occupational therapy. I also I like the way that it that it thinks about um, illness not as your pathology, but mm. as how it impacts on on your your being in the world. And and that I I think is 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 to me very very potent. So it doesn't really matter what your what your label is it's, it's just more about how is this affecting you and how can what can we do to support you for, for, for you to live the life that you want to live and so I still have that kind of hat and it does inform the way I approach my research but I think anthropology kind of gave me the tools to think about those ways of being in the world and how they vary and how so many of the assumptions 
uh, that we make about what is what feels right and uh, is 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 defined by where we grow up and 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 how we live, you know, and and that and how much that can vary. The way you can think about something as very simple as, uh, well, not simple <laughs> as as what it is to be a human being, you know, how much that can can vary. And so it gave me those tools and the theory um, to think about some of those big questions. The other kind of crossover, I guess, I guess, between the occupational therapy and anthropology is around the the method. Mm. Um, and and the method is to is to be with people and to uh, you know participate in what they're doing. So if I was being an occupational therapist, I would you know go into the kitchen with people and and cook with them and uh, see how you know for example if they had um, cognitive problems, you know memory problems or problems with focusing or attention, how that impacted on how they prepared a meal. Um, when I do that, when I'm doing my research in Ghana, then I'm going with people in the kitchen and I'm looking at the same questions, you know, but I'm not looking at it with a kind of clinical aim to think, okay, so how can I, you know, what support do you need to make sure that you're getting, you know, a, a meal? But um, I'm asking the same questions about how the illness has impacted on that, but I wouldn't necessarily be thinking of, of, of how to ameliorate that situation. That would be more, more to do with the, the people who, who are their supports around the family mm. or the mental health workers or whatever. So that's sort of very kind of detailed every day, being with, being alongside, understanding what it, what it means physically and bodily to, to be in these kind of spaces as well. That, that same method, uh, the ethnographic method of doing something in a naturalistic way and having conversations with people. I, I find that an incredibly powerful method. Uh, it's not unique to anthropology, of course. So, you know, I think that method really enriches the data that that you're able to gather as a as a researcher. Uh, aside mm. from, you know, the interview space, which is a kind of performative space, isn't it? And and very constrained in in some ways. Totally. No, I. It really resonates me with what you're saying, in particular about the way that doing the occupational side of things, how it really allows you to approach them. Uh, centered within their humanity in the way that I think often anthropology, especially coming from the global north to the global south, how that can really impose almost a performance on on certain things and how the, the amalgamation of, of the two, and obviously, correct me if I'm, I'm misunderstanding, they can enrich the experience in a way that allows you to be situated, at least for moments, alongside them rather than hypothesizing from a chair from nowhere or taking, you know, Durkheim or a famous anthropologist along with you in their theory and only looking at them from that scope, but being there with them in their scope, I think is, is really wonderful. Yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean, I would say, you know, that, that was the, you know, the anthropology, the anthropological method was to go there and be there and mm -hmm. learn the language and be alongside uh, people. But of course, anthropology's history is a, is a colonial history as well. And so there was, a, there was, there were all those kind of power dynamics and, and I, I carried them with me to the field. You know, I was right. obviously a white woman in a black space and, and in a, an African, a Ghanaian space. And um, so, you know, that, that presented all sorts of questions for me. To, to deal with as well in the field and um those are still issues that are that are present for me today as a researcher to think through how those power dynamics work out in the field and so i guess moving moving along in that same vein then could you discuss a little bit about uh the different kinds of power at play being in these uh research and clinical encounters how do you see them change across cultures when you are based in the uk and when you are teaching or when you're speaking with people um, in what ways do you mediate this power uh, and does it change differently and ought it change differently if it doesn't? I think I think when I began my research career, I think I put my foot in it a lot. I think mm. that's, uh, you know, reflectively you can you can see points where, yeah, if I was going, you know, going now, I wouldn't go about it quite that way. Mm. Um, I was very fortunate, as I said, to have kind of um, mentors and colleagues who were doing research, who were Ghanaians doing research in Ghana. And so, you know, it's very much me learning from them and, and working with them. Um, but also thinking about what, uh, what thinkers, what, what ways of thinking through these questions could be of benefit. I think, I think, I think maybe I can illustrate this with an example. Please do. Um, because I think, um, obviously, for many people in, in Ghana, psychiatry, the vocabulary of psychiatry, and I think um, we may talk about this a bit later, but 
it's 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 some of it is quite new, and I think sometimes I feel that the medical model can, for many people, be a way of making sense of their experience that takes out a lot of the kind of moral judgments that can come alongside ideas of what mental illness is often it can be linked to ideas of you know taking drugs or doing something um spiritually questionable like witchcraft or you know being cursed or all these kind of connotations which can be very stigmatizing and so a medical model of mental illness for many people that i know with lived experience of mental illness in ghana that means that they can not have to deal with all that kind of stuff and find a, a you know, a, it's a more neutral way for many people of thinking about it. I've got an illness, you know, just like any other illness and I can take medication for that. Now, obviously, I know that from, you know, the history of working in mental health services mm-hmm. in, in the UK and, 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 and knowing, you know, what I've read from the US and, you know, that many people with lived experience in those settings have contested the medicalization of their experience because it's actually in itself has been stigmatizing and has also sidelined people making sense of their mental illness through spiritual uh, language or, or ways of, of, uh, of being. So, I think what, what's nice is that there is space to kind of open up this kind of conversation of thinking about different ways of making sense of experience and bringing people into conversation across these geographical boundaries mm. to, to kind of, because the question of what mental illness is, is still unresolved. And the kind of things that are often presented as certainties, you know, in, in the Ghanaian context, I see sometimes, you know, that education around mental illness often presents things as certainties. And that, you know, we like certainties and right. public health messages, you know, supposed to be clear and kind of, you know, and not, but of course, you know, for me, what's interesting about mental illness is that it does have all these uncertainties and it does, you know, it still is an open question exactly, you know, what causes what we call schizophrenia and, you know, and, and even schizophrenia as a label is, you know, many people would argue that that's, we should get rid of it. And, you know, so I, I think um, I'm going about this in a long way, but I'm kind of saying that there's there's this a space for opening questions. And I think that sometimes, you know, when I've, um, I mean, I remember going in Kintampo, giving a lecture in the College of Health there and and just telling people actually about some of the experiences that I'd had in the UK of, of patients, you know, um, being very un, unhappy with the medication they were taking and looking for alternatives and uh, mental health workers trying to work with, with people to see how, you know, they could um, reduce their medication and come off their medication and find other paths to recovery. Do you, so, do you find that uh, in Ghana there's a desire to be because of the stigma, uh, the moral stigma in particular of potentially having um, abnormal behavior or something that would present itself as schizophrenia in the global north. Um, is there a desire to for these individuals to say that they have a mental illness? Like, are they asking um, for a label? Are they asking for medication? Is that something that you've experienced? Yeah, I feel I'm, I'm slightly uncomfortable saying talking on behalf of the, the people, but I, you know. Um, I think there are many people that I've spoken with in Ghana who, for whom receiving a diagnosis has been a big relief, Mm. you know, because they have been going through these experiences and not really knowing what's happening. And, um, you know, it's caused all sorts of problems at work, in daily life, in their relationships, their families, and, you know, getting a diagnosis, talking with a psychiatrist who can help them to make sense of some of what's happening in, within that medical frame has actually been very very helpful uh, in a, in, a, in a time of huge confusion and and distress. Nonetheless, I think it's true to say that many people I meet are very unhappy with the medication, mm. and we all know that um, you know the drugs that are used to treat psychosis in particular have really terrible side effects um, and really problematic and people find that they're sedated which they're sedatives so they're sedating um you know they can impact on your sexual performance they can um make people find kind of feel cut off from their emotions so people wrestle in the same way and i think Mm. they also the idea of taking medication indefinitely is also horrific to many people you know the idea that you have to keep taking these chemicals for for years on end and through my practice as an OT and my practice as um, 
as a researcher, you know, I've sat with people who have been really devastated that they came, they stopped taking the medication and then they had some terrible symptoms, you know, hearing voices or something or really frightening experiences. And then, you know, feeling, God, is this, is this it? I've got to kind of t- keep taking these meds and, and it's, it's really difficult. And I think there's a real, um, a real need to have honest conversations about these issues that, and, and, um, you know, I mean, some people have also queried, you know, the, the level of research that goes into treatments for, for mental health is nothing like at the same level that it is for physical conditions. So there's a very limited, um, limited options really, even in terms of something as basic as medication. So in in brief, I think, you know, the medical model is helpful for, for some people to make sense of what's happening. But I, I think what's not helpful is when that kind of drowns out other ways of making sense of experience. Mm-hmm. Um, it sort of erases all the questions, all the the, the unresolved issues, the, the issues that are still being debated and researched today. Um, then obviously when, to go back to those questions of power, you know, medicine has massive power compared to other ways of approaching mental illness. And you can see that, you know, even on, so health systems are, Fund, that are funded by uh, international aid organizations, by by local governments, you know, they fund medical health systems. Right. They fund psychiatry, they fund psychology, perhaps sometimes. Um, they don't fund traditional healers. They don't fund uh, faith-based healers. You know, that is not sponsored by the state. Those are private enterprises. <laughs> the reason why I ask is because in my experience in, in countries in the global South, I feel uh, often it, it, it's as though some of the, the talking points from folks that really, really believe in the medical model could help them. And, and not to say that it won't, but it does feel like the globalization and, and exporting of psychiatry to the global South feels really, really challenging in particular to then understand what are other ways of meaning making when we're telling people all across the world, we being uh, global superpowers in psychiatry and psychology, that the biomedical model is is the right model. And I would love for you to explain or give an anecdote about how there are other ways of meaning making, in particular in, in faith-based practices and that aren't funded by uh, all of these quite insidious enterprises. I mean, I think it's important to remember that, of course, you know, places like Ghana and Nigeria and other other countries, um, you know, they have their own histories of psychiatry. I mean, psychiatry has been around in Ghana, you know, for over a hundred years. You know, it's um, it's uh, their own traditions of how that has has come to, to be. You know, starting in the colonial period, and then, of course, in the post-colonial. I mean, so the two of the there are three psychiatric hospitals in Ghana. Two were built in the post-colonial period, as a you know, and thinking. People were thinking at the time of, you know, like new models of mental health and 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 what, uh, you know, something that wasn't like a colonial asylum, that wasn't like a prison, but was more like a, a therapeutic kind of space. Um, so it's important that we don't just think of it as something that's been exported from the north mm. and, you know, taken to the south. To go back to your question, I think, um, I mean, it's interesting, I think, working in Ghana because so many people, faith is so important to them. And so even, uh, you know, someone that you can think of as the most diehard psychiatrist will also go to church on a Sunday uh, and, and not just go to church on Sunday, but pray every day, read the Bible every day. You know, that the faith, mm-hmm. faith is present in ways perhaps that for many people in the US and in the UK, it isn't. Um, and so it uh, even when people are working in psychology and psychiatry and mental health as mental health nurses, their faith is also there. So. Mm. Um, I think this is one of the things that facilitates working alongside traditional and faith-based healers as well. I think there is a lot of respect for, for the work that some of these people do. There is also a healthy kind of critique because there are there are healers who are very exploitative. Uh, and obviously, there are a lot of concerns about the use of chains and shackles and another restraint so there's a lot of mistreatment that goes on in in some of these places as well so there are lots of very difficult ethical issues to consider but I think um, we've been doing research looking at how traditional and faith-based healers and mental health workers are working together and the nurses that we were working with uh, in in the the town where we were the towns where we were doing our research in Ghana you know very much um, saw it as being a balance, you know, between the two. So they would, they, they kind of, as mental health workers, were offering um, a kind of medical framing and 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 psychiatric 
drugs and also addressing not just doing that, but also thinking about some of the, you know, how they could support people with their livelihoods and things like that. They were aware of the kind of social factors that were also difficult for people. Poverty is a huge part of people's lives in in, in that part of the world. Um, but then they also recognised, you know, that these the faith-based and traditional healers have expertise in the spiritual realm and that they have insight to th- into these other aspects and that these were incredibly important um, for their patients in making and and their caregivers in making sense of what had happened. Um, and this is, I think, something that really is is something that we can learn from, is how these different approaches can work together. Oftentimes, not, not respecting each other's space. I mean, the models that we were looking at, people were not kind of coming together in the same space necessarily. Um, there were different ways of doing it. Sometimes nurses will go and... Um, maybe do an education session on mental health and teach people about, you know, um, different, you know, how mental health can affect people, signs and symptoms to look out for, where to go for help. They might, you know, and a church might allow you to go there and do that that talk as a nurse, mm-hmm. you could do that. And they would go and um, see how the patients there were being treated. And uh, also some healers will allow them to be giving them medication while they're also doing the prayers. So, so this kind of way of combining medicine and prayers mm. is you know as a little medicine a little prayer that's um a common expression in Ghana and, and one that's the subtitle for our film which will be coming out from our together for mental health project so that that expression kind of you know that making space for both approaches and recognizing mm. that both of them are, in, are important um, and there's sort of mutual respect building that is one of the success factors I think in 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 having these kind of pluralistic approaches mm. to mental health if you could, would would you tell us just a little bit more about the film, just really briefly? Yeah, sure. So um, myself and Aminia Kalucci, um, we who's a filmmaker and um, psychologist, cultural psychologist, we got um, some funding from um, the Global Challenges Research Fund uh, in the UK to um, to make a film in Ghana and in Indonesia, um, where Aminia had worked before, to look at how. Uh, mental health workers and faith-based healers are working together and traditional healers. Yeah, so we, with Lily Poby, uh, my colleague in Ghana, and uh, Roberta Salome, our research assistant, we spent some time up in um, a town in in Ghana uh, where, I, where there were some nurses who I'd met before who I knew were were visiting traditional and faith-based healers and doing some work with them. So we kind of went with them to visit they introduced us to the healers working in their area and we we looked at you know how they how they were establishing these relationships mm. um, and what different ways they had found to establish these collaborations um, and Ghana's been very innovative in this respect because they um, their mental health act which was uh, revised in 2012 uh, from a sort of rights-based approach one of the aspects of the act was around working with traditional and faith-based healers so that the shackling and chaining uh, that, that that could be reduced and eventually eliminated. So as part of that, they, they've given a lot of backing to setting up these kind of collaborations and we're asking community mental health workers to do that. So they uh, they have published a policy on that. Um, uh, and and so, yeah, so the big challenge for nurses, as, as in many countries, is the lack of resources, really. So a lot of the time, these uh, collaborations, you know, visiting healers who live miles away, you know, it needs transport and they don't have transport um, mm. and um, they don't have money for fuel. Even if they did have transport, uh, they may not have medications. I mean, getting medication. I mean, that's the funny thing in a way that people worry about kind of over medicalization of mental health right. in the global south, but actually getting hold of drugs, uh, med- pharmaceutical drugs, is, you know, it's a real problem. Uh, it's very expensive. Uh, they should be free, but they're not available often. So they face a lot of these kind of resource challenges. But the people that we followed, you know, incredibly resourceful in finding ways of getting around these challenges, raising funds, digging into their own pockets. Um, so the films are, they're in the final state. The Ghanaian film is in the final stages of editing. So it should be out later this year. So the project is called Together for Mental Health. And you can follow us on Twitter and other social media pages. Very excited to show that film when it comes out. Yeah. And just as like a, a segue back into the, the formal part of the interview, but also just um, out of my own curiosity, what for you is the ideal outcome 
of the film? Is it to complicate our understanding? Uh, is it to share stories? Is it uh, a mixture of both? The idea for the film really is we wanted to set up kind of an exchange of experiences and knowledge between Indonesia and Ghana. I mean, mm. that's and that's one of the things that has, has happened, you know, and it's been really great to bring people together from these two countries who, who are facing similar challenges in terms of the concerns about human rights. And uh, in, in Indonesia, it's called pasung, you know, the use of uh, restraints and, and cages and things uh, that are used uh, to restrain people who are considered to have mental health issues. So, uh, it's been really great to, to, to establish that network. Uh, and then also the films we hope will be used for education, for uh, awareness raising, for um, yeah, starting these conversations about how can these collaborations be set up? How do they best work? What are the factors that make them successful? Um, so they could be used for training health workers, for example, who want to do these kind of things. And I think, you know, mm. I think there'll be real interest, you know, in the UK, in the US, because I know projects, you know, in South London, for example, where I live that, you know, where there are a lot of black churches and people want to think about how, you know, how mental health services can come together with with people in the in our black communities in the UK to to, to mm. work together um, and bring spiritual approaches more you know to consider spiritual approaches to mental health uh, and the sort of social aspect because um in Ghana too that's what we see you know is that these um, faith-based they're called prayer camps where people can go and stay and often you know they are spaces where caregivers in particular can come together and share their experiences meet other people who've been through similar circumstances and they support each other you know in in mm. in very very difficult situations often it's wonderful. And it, it inspires me to ask, ask a little bit further just about the experiences. And uh, in particular, you had recently written a piece in um, a limited series called Psychiatry Beyond Fanon that references a little bit about the caging that we see from the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, and the photographs that we are given. And I know personally from experience, the uh, Pasong in Indonesia and, and the caging of individuals there as well. And I guess, would you tell us more about this specific piece and in particular, like the series writ large? Yeah, I mean, the series was, um, it was edited by um, Matthew Heaton, who's a US historian of uh, psychiatry, but he uh, wrote a very great um, book called Black Skin, White Coats about the history of psychiatry in Nigeria. So really, the the series has promoted has has published different short pieces. Uh, Africa's country is a blog, um, an online uh, space where Katie Kilroy Mark, for example, had written uh, based on some of her work in Senegal about um, within uh, the French um, colonies used to send people back to France for treatment uh, from Africa, uh, and and it's a really terrible stories of people who were just you know uprooted from their country sent to Marseille and, and died in Marseille in the asylums in Marseille I mean so it's kind of trying to shed light on some of these histories I I, I mean the inspiration for that piece really came uh, because there was an article published in The Guardian which is kind of the UK's leading kind of progressive newspaper I suppose and it had a lot of these pictures of people in chains in Ghana and uh, the ho whole sort of photo series accompanied this article. And, you know, it was talking about Ghana as like a mental health void where, you know, there was just no access to psychiatry and people were chained up. And, uh, and um, I felt very disturbed by that piece because mm. I felt it presented Ghana as if nothing had ever changed there, that, that you know, there, there, were, there were absolutely no mental health services whatsoever, that, you know, everybody was just kind of, it was like a kind of, in the dark ages, you know, primitive and just in a stasis, all those sort of tropes of Africa as being, you know, backward and out of step. Um, yeah, nothing changing. So I felt, so I had, um, back when the article was first published, my, I got together with um, a load of people in Ghana that I know, the um, the head of the, psych of the mental health services there and loads of people. And we wrote to the Guardian and we said, look, you know, there were, there were actual you know, there were facts in there. There were misrepresentations of facts, like the number of psychiatrists was wrong. And, you know, there were, so we corrected those and we said, you know, we felt it was a misrepresentation and Ghana had 
really expanded the number of community mental health workers quite dramatically over the last 10 years. And, you know, while we felt, yeah, you know, we understood the need to highlight these um, injustices, you know, we felt there was a, a bigger story to tell. So um, the Guardian completely ignored our letter, which I felt was quite shocking, given that, you know, had the head of psychiatry in Germany, for example, written uh, to the Guardian, would they have ignored it? I don't know. But anyway, it was Ghana, so they did. Um, so that was the kind of inspiration for the piece. Mm. Uh, so it became this piece for, for Africa as a country. And I just wanted to shed light on what had changed in Ghana. Mm. And I've been working in Ghana since 2005. So I've been able to see that firsthand, you know, how the number of, you know, Kintampo, where I did my PhD, when I went there, there was not one mental health worker in that town and quite a sizable town. Mm. Um, and now, you know, there are, there are, tens uh, of mental health workers mm. in that town and in the villages around you know so it's a really dramatic uh, change and it means that mental health care is a lot more accessible mm. and um, you know in the place where the images were taken um, Stephen Asante who's a mental health nurse in uh, uh, Tamale a city in the north of Ghana he is, his salary is paid by Ghana Health Service. You know, he's a state employee. Uh, he works for the state health service. He's also set up his own NGO. He is there, you know, helping to free people from chains, getting them treatment. So I, 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 that was what I wanted to kind of highlight, really, that there is this, these stories that don't get told. They're not so dramatic. Right. Uh, and they perhaps don't fit with people's stereotype. Uh, and with, I suppose, the ways that those kind of images are used to to appeal for funds, aren't they? So images of starving mm. black bodies, chained black bodies, um, but they risk replicating these these stereotypes right. uh, and and replicating the power dynamics where it's kind of you know the white savior complex that they're sort of waiting for someone to come and rescue them rather than actual actually Ghana. Many Ghanaians are deeply troubled by these issues and are fighting very hard to to make sure that nobody is chained in Ghana anymore. Right. They don't need this like voyeuristic misrepresentation of, of their work and, and what's being done. And I feel like it, it especially gives me pause because in replicating these stereotypes, it then also replicates as well, just like the complete misunderstanding of, of I think, faith-based healing not being something that works. Because if this country has faith-based healing and it, and it, but look, they're still chaining people. Do you think that it, does an injustice to the kind of um, spiritual and faith-based work these kinds of images um, because up here in in the U.S. when we see mental illness and we see people caged because of their mental illness of course our natural thing to reach for is uh, medical intervention not necessarily faith-based intervention. I think it's important to say that of course you know I've met many people who are who have been chained or are chained in, in Ghana and, and it, you know it's horrific and I I don't want to in any way minimize the suffering that people have but I think it's to, that is not the only story and that mm. um there are um other people I have met who faith-based healers who who genuinely care for the wealth welfare of the people who come and use their services and um do a lot to try and support a very stigmatized group actually and that's mm. that's the thing you know that they're they're often working with people that uh, you know other people don't want to work with um you know we when we were doing the film uh you know we went to visit a faith-based a pastor in 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 this this town um a big market town in ghana and you know walking into that compound there were many young men predominantly in really serious distress some very angry you know shouting and being very abusive to their their family members their mothers usually it's usually the mothers who are mm. staying there with them you know insulting them shouting at them and you can see just how difficult it is for the families in those situations uh when they're facing uh a, a crisis really and I felt I it really struck me because it was like walking onto an acute ward and thinking mm. but but a space where, you know, there were no um, 
places to have time out, no sort of, you know, nobody's been trained in de-escalation, mm. you know, it's kind of, so people are having to deal with this the best way they can. Um, and in a space that's not very safe, you know, you, there are knives, there are rocks, there are all sorts of things, um, fufu pest, uh, pestles for pounding fufu. These are all things that I know have been used as weapons. Um, and, you know, I know those stories and I do know people, you know, people, have, mothers have been killed, these are things that are not common in psychiatry, but to pretend that that doesn't happen is also to ignore that that doesn't, that, mm. that, you know, there are, there are things that happen and they are tragedies. And of course, it's a terrible tragedy for the person who is experiencing a mental health crisis and, and commits that act, you know, mm. everybody wants, because they have to live with that for the rest of their lives. And so people in Ghana have, have expressed to me that they feel that in some ways, you know, they are making up for the lack of mental health services, you know, because there aren't enough um, wards for people to go when they are in acute crisis or safe houses or places where whatever model you want to use those those things are not there so the yeah. the, the the churches um, and the shrines are often filling that gap by holding these acute cases and and that the upshot of that is of course that people can get chained so these are really difficult difficult questions for all societies mm. um, and when you were talking you know I was also thinking about the the really horrible you know, situations that happen on, on wards in our countries, you know, in the UK and the US, and, and, you know, and indeed in Ghana, you know, where people are forcibly held down and forcibly injected or given ECT uh, without anaesthetic, you know, these are all abuses in one way or another. And some of them, we justify them, um, mm. but we don't work hard enough to find other ways of approaching these situations. Um you know, here in the UK, you can still, of course, our Mental Health Act permits you to take people against their will to hospital. And in an ideal world, we want to find some way where that wouldn't be necessary. And oftentimes it ends up, I think we're at a bit of a crisis point at the moment, actually, because the cuts in mental health services mean that it's much more likely that compulsion will be used because right. people are not getting support in the community and things get to crisis point. And then, you know, then it's much more likely that you're going to use the Mental Health Act to bring people in to hospital. I think that's in my work in a way, that's what I, I like to do is to try and think of these as like kind of they're big issues for all of us to grapple with. Mm -hmm. And I think that we are all learning together um, how to deal with these central problems of being human. And Absolutely. I think all of the, the issues that you had just described across all of the different cultures and communities that we're talking about uh, can easily be described as some kind of human rights abuse or a neglect of human rights. And I think um, we so often hear nowadays uh, the boasting of rights-based approaches to mental health care. I'd love for you to define rights-based mental health care for our listeners, because I think it's often something that is really difficult to define. And so how is it defined to you and your work and how does faith-based healing um, fit into rights-based approaches? Yeah, it's a really good question because I think, you know, rights rights has become one of the sort of central kind of discourses in mental health and, you know, WHO and World Health Organization, the UN, uh, you know, um, there's a big push to, to, to improve rights in mental health, but but often we tend to think of rights very much in these kind of freedom from abuse, right? So, uh, and particularly perhaps when we think of countries like Ghana, that we think about it as a rights-based healthcare is getting rid of the chains, getting rid of the restraints, um, improving access, the right to health, right? So improving mm -hmm. access to mental health services, evidence-based uh, services. What we tend to focus less on is... Um, what have been called like positive rights or there's the, the sort of rights to be included and the research that I've been doing with the Wellcome Trust, the Mental Health and Justice Project as Kings is around Article 19 of the CRPD, the Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities. Um, and that's looking at um, the rights. Article 19 talks about the right to live independently and to be included in the community. Mm. And, you know, when we think about rights based at healthcare, mental health care, we often don't think about that. We don't think about the right to have a decent job, the right to a family life. You know, a lot of people that I know with mental health issues, they don't have kids. Uh, they don't have, you know, they're not married. Uh, and in a culture like Ghana, that's really quite unusual. And yeah, it's, you know, I've met women uh, who their children have been taken away from them because they have a mental health problem. And gone to live with a father's family, you know. So these are all rights issues. Um, 
And I have to say that, you know, the, there are some great NGOs in Ghana who are really doing a lot to push on rights um, and uh, civil society organisations. It's interesting, actually, because people, uh, organisations that have been right, focused on gender equality, for example, domestic violence, these kind of issues, um, they've become involved in, you know, and seeing these through a mental health, that these are also issues that are relevant to mental health. Yeah, so a rights-based approach would would be looking at kind of, yeah, these issues around social inclusion, around participation, around creating enabling environments where whatever whatever your issue is, whatever um, disability you have, that, you know, you have the supports that you need to make decisions about your care, to, um, to live with who you want to live with to um you know to to work to 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 have a meaningful role in in society i think the complex issues are around that these is, these rights are often you know even if you don't have a mental health issue are often not available to people and you know there've just been big protests in ghana because there's huge you know youth unemployment um there are just not the work opportunities um there's rising inequality in ghana as there is all over the globe and obviously, in the pandemic, that has has really increased those inequalities. And so, I think we really are at a very critical point. Actually, we're also another project that I'm working on is thinking about how to have, um, um, you know, after the pandemic, well, during the pandemic and 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 in in life, hopefully after the pandemic, how to, you know, have a more disability inclusive mm. um, recovery. You know, where we don't just uh, sort of go back to normal but right. that we think about how services can uh, um, and how societies and communities can be more more inclusive um, for everyone and mm. be more accepting of difference um, and I think that's what as human beings we're not always very good at that right right and especially um, when th- those differences we, we perceive or we're, we're told are uh, a cause internally within ourselves, whether it be in mm-hmm. Ghana in a, in a more moral, spiritual way, or whether it be in in the U.S. and the U.K. in an illness way, the, the the blame still falls onto us. When I think, and I really appreciate you saying it so directly, it's it, it's often such a social determinant as well. And one of my favorite catchphrases or turns of phrase that I've coined, I've coined it. Now. <laughs> I, I'm certain somebody else has said it before me. As uh, suicide is a social justice issue, meaning that like. People aren't just killing themselves where we have, it is an inequity. And I really appreciate you saying that so frankly. Uh, and so just to, to wrap up, I, I suppose my, my last question would be this, which is how do you believe that we can continue to move forward with global mental health in a way that is most, most ethical and efficacious, especially as inequality rises and especially with the history of global mental health as a field? I think the big question for global mental health is well there are two kind of big questions really i think one is around kind of decolonizing global mental health and um shifting the 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 power dynamics i mean at the moment um it's so frustrating because most of the the way the funding networks are set up the, the typically it works and this is how all my projects are that the funds come from from the uk from funders in the uk and then they get sent to um, our partners in the global south and of course that just totally retains the, it's a really colonial way of doing it it means that all the kind of um, governance strategies all the funds you know uh, it's, it's all flowing one way and and that's just not right and that really has to change uh, and we need to see the funds uh, you know funding sources coming up in within countries mm. so they can you know fund their own research fund their own researchers without it having to come via institutions in the north so that's something i know that other people in global mental health i know that um melanie abbas at king's college london recently wrote about this so i think this um with with some colleagues so i think these are really important issues uh the funding how funding is 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 set up and how it's organized and where it comes from that that really has to change um, I don't want to be the principal investigator for my research projects without having principal investigators in the countries where I work. Mm. Who, you know, um, that's just not right. So that's one of the things that has to change. I also think that 
global mental health is such a misnomer because it's not really very global. Um, <laughs> it's very focused in certain countries, often former colonies. So, you know, it's no no coincidence that Ghana is a former colony of UK. That's where I work. We have these close relationships. There are lots of Ghanaians living in the UK. You know, these are these are colonial histories that have informed those migration patterns. If you look at global mental health, a lot of it is based in Anglophone countries, you know, and a few of those. So, uh, you know, you've got kind of places like Uganda, South Africa, and talking about the African continent. Mm. And there's just huge swathes of, of Africa that just never get, you know, no research really is ever published. And if, if it's not in English, nobody reads it. And so there's all these kind of, yeah, so I think we just need to... Um, Global mental health needs to really sort of think about where where research and when we talk about Africa, are we talking about really talking about Africa? And Africa is not a country, right. <laughs> you know. Um, and um, to recognise that kind of diversity, and also to think about the inequalities in our own countries. And global, you know, global health is often seen as you know the global is everything that is not the north, right? It's mm. not the west or whatever we're going to call ourselves. Mm. And so. Yeah, I think we we should be able to turn the lens on the so-called global north and to have, you know, um, I'd love to see Ghanaians coming and doing research on the mental health system here or on faith-based and traditional healers here. That would be great. You know, someone who doesn't live here to come and cast that eye and 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 tell us about ourselves. (laughs) That would be great. Uh, Come and ask some questions about the way we do things. That's what's got to happen. It's just got to be a much more equitable. playing field. Totally. Yeah. I love that so much. The, the last thing that I want to just like open up to you, is there anything that you, you want to share that I, we didn't get to touch on with, with my questions? The questions that people always often ask me, uh, one is, so what is your research going to do to help us, to help Ghana? Which mm. I always think is totally the right question to ask. Uh, the other question is, you know, more of a personal one. It's like, how, you know, how can, you support me. How can you help me? I need medication. I need, you know, uh, you know, um, I want to get a job. I need to earn an income. Um, you know, these are the kind of questions. So I think, you know, I think that is, that is the question for all of us who work in research, you know, and I think, you know, we started talking about different hats and I think because I have worked in mental health services and I know there are things that can help. I think, um, you know, it's often, not enough to just sort of intellectualize around these questions and theorize around these questions, but also uh, it's also not satisfactory to just export models that we have and, and, you know, scale them up and expect that they're going to work. We have to kind of be humble about what we know and really listen carefully to what people are telling us about what might help or what they know, because, you know, everybody I've spoken to in Ghana are experts on their lives and on what's happening to them, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so my job is to listen and learn from what they tell me. And hopefully I try to kind of share some of that with with people in Ghana, but also outside. Thank you very much for having me, Sam. Absolutely. Really interesting questions. Uh, no, absolutely. And I think you did a, a wonderful job. It, it's evident that you listen and, and we're really grateful that you were able to share with us all that you have. So thank you. Thank you, Sam. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.